0: Talking about that trauma from your mama with Mark Wolin. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with Mark Wolin, the author of the critically acclaimed bestseller, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. Now, we've talked about Mark in this book several times on the podcast. If you have not listened to episode 12, I highly recommend that you do. This is where I break down the concept of generational trauma, how trauma is passed to us not just psychologically and emotionally, but also genetically. And we will be diving deeper into this with Mark, as well as a myriad of other topics such as attachment trauma. This conversation is so fucking good, you guys. And this was a bucket list interview for me, so I'm so excited for y'all to hear it. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the core language approach, which is a therapeutic model that Mark created. And this helps us discover the root- the core trauma that is causing our present day struggles. And this is why I didn't heal for so long. This is why there was a Brian number one followed by a Brian number two. It didn't matter how many 12-step meetings I went to, how many four steps I did, how many CBT therapy sessions I had, or how many times I promised myself to do things differently in the next relationship. Shit didn't get any better for me, I didn't get any better until I was able to identify the core trauma, which was my unresolved childhood trauma. So through the core language approach, we find the story behind the story by identifying the core complaint, the core sentence, and the core descriptors. And then these then are our breadcrumbs to our core trauma. And this method can be used on both unresolved childhood trauma as well as inherited trauma. And I'm going to give you real life examples for both. So unresolved childhood trauma, let's use me as the example. So first, the core complaint. This is a phrase to describe your current fears or your current struggles. So for me, it was the fear that Brian number two will break up with me, that he will abandon me that I keep finding myself in toxic relationships with emotionally unavailable alcoholic men. Next, we identify the core sentence. So this is the outcome that could result if your fears come true or what your struggles result in. So for me, it was, you know, if he breaks up with me, my life is over. I won't be able to handle the pain. I will never get over him. This is the last person on earth that will ever like me and I will die alone. Number three, the core descriptor. So this is kind of like a mini fourth step almost for those of you familiar with the 12 steps, but this is where we describe our relationship with our parents. We write down what we resent about them, paying close attention to emotionally charged words. So for me, my dad. He cared about work more than me. The only time I felt that he was emotionally connected to me was when my mom was drunk and emotionally disconnected to him, that he would threaten to divorce my mom all the time, but he never actually went through with it. Then with my mom, she was the best mom ever, except for when she was drunk and I had to take care of her. And I often never knew what to expect. I never knew if it was going to be a good night or a bad night. So now we have our core complaint, our core sentence, and our core descriptors. And now it's pretty damn obvious why I had these issues and how clearly they're connected to my childhood. No wonder I kept finding myself in relationships with emotionally unavailable men because I felt like my dad was emotionally unavailable to me. And no wonder that I kept finding myself in relationships with alcoholics where I never knew what to expect if it was going to be a good night or a bad night because that was my experience with my mom. And then when it was a bad night, I had to take care of her just like my experience with my mom and why I was never able to walk away from these relationships because that's what I saw my dad do. He never walked away. So, ding, 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 we have the core trauma. We can now start addressing the core trauma. Holly fucking Luya. Now, for an example with inherited trauma. And this is actually an example that comes from Mark Wilin. I've heard him share this story before and it is fucking fascinating. So, he was working with a client. She was 24 years old. So, the core complaint was, She was a cutter. She kept cutting herself. She kept finding herself in and out of the psych ward. And so one day after she got out of the hospital, he was working with her and he asked her, what is the thought that comes in your head right before you cut yourself? And she said, I deserve to die. This is the core sentence. So Mark's looking at this woman whose life has really just begun, and he's wondering how in the hell could she be feeling this way? So we asks her, had she ever hurt anyone? Had she ever felt responsible for someone's suicide? And she said, no, nothing like that. So then he moves on to the core descriptors, and he asks her to describe her parents and her relationship with them and her childhood. And it all seemed to be rather happy and uneventful. So we have the core complaint, the core sentence, the core descriptors, and there doesn't seem to be any obvious links. So then he starts asking questions to see if there was any attachment trauma. What was the birthing experience? What was her in utero experience? And he will be getting into that more in our interview. But again, he couldn't find anything there. So he then digs deeper into her family story and he asks her about her grandparents. And so she shares about her grandparents on her father's side. So her dad's mom was an alcoholic, and one day they were in the car, the grandma was driving drunk, and her grandfather was in the passenger seat, and the grandma hit a telephone pole. The grandfather went through the windshield, and he was lacerated from the glass of the windshield. He bled out before the ambulance could arrive, and the grandmother survived the crash. So right then and there, he was able to identify the inherited trauma that she was connected to her grandfather through the cutting, while at the same time she appeared to be punishing herself for what her grandmother had done. It was her grandmother who felt that she deserved to die. He was then able to work with her through getting through that trauma, and she never cut again. There are so many other stories that are as fascinating, as crazy, that are in his book. So you need to fucking read it if you haven't. But now enough out of me. Let's talk to this amazing man and hear all of his wisdom. And please give me a five-star rating on Apple. I would really, really, really appreciate it. And it will help me reach more adult children. So just think, if you're not giving me a five-star review on Apple, you are contributing to the suffering of others. So just sit with that. I'm joking, but at the same time, I'm not. Now for Mark. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Will He is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco. He is a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma, but we know him because we've talked about his damn book plenty. It didn't start with you, how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here, Andrea.
0: Yeah, this is this is awesome. I've been teasing to the listeners that I've been um, stalking you to get you on the pod. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, Persistence it's, works, right? <laughs>
1: it's my pleasure.
0: So I have brought up your book uh, several times, you know, in the pod, and um, the listeners are definitely familiar with the concept of inherited trauma. But before we kind of get into all that, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background, um, specifically how you ended up doing this work. And if there's any sort of connection between your child experiences and you going down this path.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I was led um, through the woods in a not so easy way, I would say. I began to um, lose my vision in one of my eyes and um, the doctors couldn't explain it. And, At what know, age? Oh, I was probably 31 Okay. And and I began to, um, you know, the, uh, I I've always been a investigator, and it wasn't good enough to hear. Well, we don't know what caused it. We think it's just stress. Mm. And and they said, well, what you know, what can I do about it? And they said, well, nothing really. We, um, in fact, the way it's uh, progressing, we think it's going to hit your other eye also, and you're going to probably lose your vision. I was diagnosed with a chronic form of retinopathy and there's no cure and now I'm terrified because I, I'm thinking here I am 31 and I'm going to go blind and um, and everything I tried um, just seemed to make it worse. I went on juice fasts and I, Uh, hands-on healing and acupuncture and just everything but as I later in life would figure out that it isn't what's what we do it's who we are that is a big component of our healing and the inner work that we do but anyway back then I'm just running around uh, like a chicken with my head cut off looking looking (laughs) yeah with one eye looking for answers and uh, so I I went on this search for healing and the search led me, um, you know, halfway around the globe, as far as Indonesia, where I'm learning from several wise teachers who taught me some fundamental, fundamental principles, um, one of which was the importance of healing my relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I could do that, you know, I had to heal what stood in the way. I don't know it at the time, but it's inherited family trauma, specifically, the anxiety that I had carried that I'd inherited from my all of my grandparents who were each orphaned in some way three of them lost their mothers when they were infants and the fourth lost her father at one so ultimately she loses her mother too in the grief and later on I'll discover that this anxiety was the real cause of my vision loss and You know, just like my parents, because they're the children of orphans, and I'm the grandchild of orphans, they had inherited also this feeling of being broken from a mother's love. That could lead either into addiction, or that could lead into frustration and anger. And I think the route my parents took was anger, frustration, not being able to um, attune. um, But this was what was passed down in my family. This being broken from a mother's love. And, you know, gosh, I remember, uh, I don't know, I'm five or six years old, running into my mother's room every time she'd leave to go to the store, thinking, you know, feeling panic that, that she would die. And I, I'm crying into her scarves. I'm five years old. I'm opening her drawers, crying into her nightgowns, breathing in the scent, thinking that she's gone and her smell would be the only thing I had left, uh, which would have been true for my grandparents who were orphans, right? They maybe had the mother's garment after she died. Anyway, I shared this with my mom years later that I told her that I, you, know, you whenever you'd leave, I'd cry into your clothes. And she said she had done the exact same thing when her mother left the house. And then my sister reading the book said, honey, I did that too when mom left the house. And then I realized the family pattern in my house was if your mom's out of sight, she's dead. And after healing you know, this break in the bond with my mom, uh, the strange thing happened, my sight came back. You know, and I didn't expect it to come back. It, um, and afterwards, you know, it, it was quite a gift, but I realized the principles I had learned worked. And so I felt compelled to share these principles and ultimately developed a method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma.
0: So had you lost full vision out of one or both of your eyes?
1: Just about full vision in my left eye. I would see a gray dot when, you know, it would follow me wherever I'd go. So, and my left eye was my good eye. And that was the eye that was affected. The other one had lazy muscles and all sorts of stuff. So really losing that lead eye was, um, you know, I'd see instead of faces, I saw like a big gray blur. I couldn't, couldn't read street signs, um, I, and I was scared. But as we know, our symptoms are our guides. Our symptoms are the direction posts. They lead us when we, you know, there's something I always say, because um, I'm a big believer in, in communicating with your symptoms, talking to them, being with them. I always say the sentence, um, diagnosis shuts down inquiry. And blocks and blocks our relationship with our symptoms. You know, we just say, "Oh, I'm diabetic," and then we no longer have to look at um, what happens when we're having an episode and what preceded it, and what heals it, and and what uh, you know, what anxiety or shutdown happens prior. So, you know, I'm a big believer in um, you know befriending our symptoms and communicating with them as my eye was really what I would say it was my best friend my eye (laughs) issue was what led me toward this work
0: did you go back to the doctor after it came back
1: (laughs) you know I did there was a funny story about that the doctor looked in my eye and there was all this what he described as a peppered scar tissue in my retina and he said read the sign and I said E G F you know P he goes you can't see that and I said, yeah, I can. He goes, well, you shouldn't be able to see that. And then he said, probably what's happening is the light's reflecting off the side of your head or something like this. And, <laughs> and you know, and it was then I learned that we're not dense physical um, matter. There's the, you know, we're energetic. And perhaps the eye couldn't see that chart, but I could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting with kind of the physical manifestations of trauma, you know, even when it comes to alcoholism or addiction or mental illness, like a lot of the times people are misdiagnosed with borderline when it's really, you know, complex PTSD or something like that. So it's already hard enough to kind of connect mental issues to trauma, but even more so when it comes to the physical issues, right? Like oh, that is just getting missed all the time.
1: You know, it, it's funny you say that. I, I look at physical issues as a denser, um, more opaque um, layer of the emotional, um, you know, when, when when we don't look at something after a while, it becomes uh, somaticized mm-hmm. in the body.
0: So true. Well, that's fascinating. So, okay, so you have a wonderful... Um, kind of summary that I've found online that kind of goes through the book. And so you have six key points in there. And I think I've pretty much already covered, um, the key ID one and two. So one is severe trauma can lead to negative behaviors and feelings, even when the trauma isn't your own. And then key idea number two is personal traumas can be passed on to successive generations via genes, as well as through behavior. So in one of my prior episodes, I feel like I I covered this at length. So I would like to now move on to, uh, to the healing part. So like the second part of your subtitle is, and how to end the cycle. (laughs) So that's like what I'm hoping to, to discuss with you today. So key idea number three resolving parent-child relationships is key in breaking the cycle of trauma. So this is where you kind of- Well, that's because
1: our parents are a template. They're a blueprint. Our relationship with our parents exists. Uh, You know, I often say what's unresolved with our mother will show up with our partner. And so a lot of what's unresolved is early. We can't find it. You know, it could be events in utero. I mean, there's so many things that we have to look at. Uh, For example- Um, Often, even though I'm the inherited trauma guy, um, I spend an equal amount of time working with breaks in the attachment uh, because um, early events that we don't even remember can break the bond. Um, uh, So what happened in the womb? What events took place in utero? Did a baby die before us? And then our mother thought we would die too while she was pregnant with us, she was terrified. Oh, my God, I don't feel, I don't feel her kicking. Um, what's, something's wrong because she had just lost a baby. So she's in this fear mode. Um, or, you know, so if a baby died miscarried or stillborn, or maybe even in utero, our mother wasn't sure she was going to keep us. So that lapse in the attunement affects us. We might not have a cognitive memory that remembers it because cognitive memory doesn't really set in until about age two or three when our hippocampus makes connections with our prefrontal cortex. But prior to that, we have somatic memory. Um, after 20 days in utero, Andrea, our neural groove and our neural tube, that which will become our nervous system are already uh, embedded in the fetus. So it was our heart. Our hearts in there after 20 days. Wow. So. Um, if our mother wasn't going to keep us in that first trimester, we know through her thoughts and feelings we feel it as cortisol we feel it as a separation. we feel it as a disconnection. so that can affect us. Also if our parents were fighting, drinking, cheating, uh, separating, dad's an alcoholic, mum felt trapped, not supported, she didn't love him she felt trapped in the marriage. Uh, They're both worried about money. She's worried about shelter, food. I mean, all of these things. There's other events. Let's say we're in utero and her mom dies. We're in utero and her best friend dies. We're in utero and her brother dies, her father. Um, All this translates into cortisol, which is caustic to the fetus. Uh, In fact, fetuses develop a cortisol busting enzyme to deal with mom's stress in utero. I talk about that in my book. Um, So it's not just events in utero, it's events during birth, labor, delivery, infancy, childhood, you know, did mom's body reject the pregnancy? Was it a long labor? Was it a difficult delivery? Uh, uh, Were we adopted? Um, was, Was mom after the delivery um, to achieve complications and there was a forced separation. Were we in an incubator? Were we taken out with forceps? Uh, were we in the hospital because we were a preemie? Um, uh, did mom and dad go on a vacation too early? Were we sent to grandma's at age three for a week? Did we have to go back and forth to separated or divorced parents? You see, all of these things affect us. I could go on. Uh, did someone die in, in when we were a baby or when we were three? Or you know, did mom lose her favorite brother? Um, uh, did mom feel trapped with our father? Was she lonely? Did she not feel chosen by him? Oh my goodness, I could go on and on. Was she just stressed in any way? And then add to this, add to all of that, Andrea, did mum mm-hmm. not get enough love, attunement, connection with her mother, because if mom didn't get enough from her, she couldn't give enough to us. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we took care of her emotionally rather than could receive from her emotionally. So you see where I'm going, right? Uh, It's a big soup.
0: It sure is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, you know, I was somebody that developed separation anxiety at such a young age, and I can pinpoint a lot of experiences I had maybe from five years old and beyond, but um, I've always heard that attachment uh, styles are formed so much earlier than that. So I've always been curious what could have happened. But then you said the thing, I know that my mom had um, a miscarriage before she had me and I never thought about that. So after we get off the phone, I'm going to call her Uh, and ask her, like, were you, you know, were you worried that you were going to lose me too?
1: She may Um, have forgotten because once once you came out and she was so happy that she may have blocked her fears. It says, oh no, everything was fine during the pregnancy, but that isn't always true. Memory is a tricky thing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, if she had a miscarriage prior, she couldn't help but think, oh my gosh, I hope this pregnancy is okay. Oh my gosh, what? If, I don't feel her kicking. I don't, <clears throat> you know, what if, what if she doesn't live? Well, maybe I won't get attached until we go further along. And in that place of not getting attached, There can be a break as well. Look, I'll say it a thousand times. Our early relationship with our mother is the foundation, the blueprint, um, the the template for building safety and security. It's the foundation for trusting life, trusting our environment, trusting experiences, trusting people, uh, trusting the care we receive from our partner, our, our therapist, our doctor trusting our body. I mean, it's everything. So <clears throat> when there's been a break with our mom, and I know you asked me about healing, I'll get to that. No,
0: we're, we're uh, go for it. You, you're on a roll.
1: <laughs> but when, when there's been a break with our mom, it's a challenge to feel safe and secure in life. Yeah. When, when mom's connection is cut off physically or emotionally, we have difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are, Andrea. That's because our inner experience, a child's inner experience of himself or herself, um, is dependent on mum's attunement. For example, when mum is looking at us fully attuned, doesn't mean her attunement is to be one hundred percent. Thirty percent, twenty or thirty percent is good enough, says Edward Tronic. Um, <clears throat> uh, look up his still face experiment. All you listeners, look up Edward Tronic, the, sil- the still face experiment look at his video and watch what happens <clears throat> when mom for two minutes doesn't attune to her baby. The baby goes crazy. But anyway, having a break in the bond with our mother is like having a break in the bond with our inner core, with ourselves. Oh, um, it, oh man, I have so much to teach you guys, <laughs> but it's like, um,
0: we can have you back too. Yeah. It, it,
1: it, we, um, is this a video as well as? Um... No,
0: we're just, I'm just going to share the audio.
1: Oh, just, okay. All right. All right. So, um, yeah. What,
0: did you want to show something?
1: No, no, no. Oh, I didn't, okay. I didn't know if I needed to, to clean my hair up or take a shower. No, I'm kidding. No.
0: Yeah, it's okay. I haven't brushed my teeth yet. <laughs>
1: right. um, look, when our mom looks at us with attunement, it's how a core, an inner core is built. She goes, she'll say something like, oh, there you are. Oh, look at you. Oh, you're so precious. Oh, you're smiling. Oh, your eyes are lighting up. And inside, we, the baby, are having an inner felt sense experience of me smiling. Mummy, see me. Uh, I, I I, good. I feel good. You get what I'm saying, right? Moms create the babies felt sense in her experience but if she's dealing with alcoholism or she's married to an alcoholic or she's didn't get enough from her mother or she's stressed that attunement can go out the window and we always question why don't I feel good inside why does my body why do I have this terrible loneliness inside why do I uh, fear the sensations in my body you get what I'm saying right because we didn't get enough of our mom making us feel okay.
0: Where does dad uh, play in the picture?
1: (laughs) A little later, a little later. Our first relationship is with our mom. The first nine months, maybe the first 18 months, maybe nine months in the womb and maybe nine months out of the womb where our neural connections are completely um, dependent on this attunement And if she's breastfeeding or bottle feeding or um, took time off work, that's a good chunk of our first 18 months to two years of life before our dad is even uh, much in the picture. In fact, initially, um, how he treats her is significant for how she feels safe, secure, and can dote on or attune to the baby. So dad, dads are really important. But at first um, the way our dads felt is through her because we're in utero, right? We're, we're in her body. So uh, we, our initial relationship is with, with her through the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then yes, dads are really important a little later.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you wanna talk about that? Kind of what like the impact of that place?
1: Yeah, we we first of all, as I said early, um, we have to have our mom feel supported. Yep, and, and that's key for our development because if she's not supported, um, then there's stress. And here's another factor: let's say she doesn't like him, um, our dad, and so we could either align with her against him and cut off our source from our father, which doesn't work. Or let's say she's not present, and we align with him against her. Well, that, that's common too. We become daddy's girl, daddy's boy, mommy's girl, mama's boy. We're chromosomally and epigenetically, 50% of each in a way. So we, we need to receive, you know, in the book, one of the things I teach is look, I get that we all have broken relationships with our parents. That's why we picked up this book in the first place. <laughs> but um, I teach people how to get support even where there was none, as you know. I teach people how to heal those relationships even when we can't. Because I know, given my story with my eye and, and uh, you know, I was so disconnected from my parents. In fact, I would go to these spiritual masters, and they'd say, "Go home, and you know, make peace with your parents." And I'd say, "What?"
0: <laughs>
1: I go, "No way!" And after I heard it again and again, I said, "Wow, maybe they know something I don't." So that's what I did. I healed my relationship with my parents, and my vision came back. And I said, "Oh, I think this works. <laughs> I think this stuff works." So what I've learned is. You know, we can't sustain broken relationships with our parents. So let me say this for the listener who says, but my parents did really crappy things. Yes, they did. But at least heal that relationship inside, in your inner landscape.
0: That's what I wanted to talk with you about. That yeah. What you say, it's it's not necessarily about healing the actual physical relationship with, the, with them, but healing the relationship that lives inside of us. Oh, Yeah. So what does that
1: mean? Okay, well, it means a lot. So let's say we don't have a core, right? I talked about how we have a core. Our core is developed by mom mirroring to us and bonding with us. So we go, mommy loves me. I feel big inside. I expand inside. Oh, mommy's looking at me. Mommy, she takes time with me. And we begin to develop this thing this inner experience of ourselves that begins to be unshakable if we have a lot of that. If we don't have so much of that, it's pretty shakable. It's a, you know, um, our hair is out of place and we, you know, and we fall apart or, you know. Yeah, tell me about or, it. <laughs> or, 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 you know, if we don't have a, a, a developed inner core, you know, a uh, fight with a friend takes us down a rabbit hole. Um, a bad a evening.
0: A three-week ba- relationship makes us want to kill ourselves. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. A three-week relationship because we go, oh, this person left me. I can't live without the this last person. Last
0: person on earth that's ever going to like me. <laughs>
1: right. But that's you see. I'm glad you brought that up. Those of us who sink deep when a relationship that didn't last long takes us down the spiral is not looking at this person yeah it's going back to our mother who so breaks in these new relationships take us back they're really good symptoms that are leading us to something deeper they're leading us to look at our relationship with our mom so when he or she breaks up with us or he or she um, leaves or whatever the story is it's really we're going back to the the yeah. devastation of a deeper um break with somebody our early break with our mother so i'm already forget what you asked me oh you asked me about
0: how to heal yeah how to heal our relationship inside of us okay Okay. yeah
1: yeah 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 so we don't have we don't have this core because um mom couldn't infuse this core in us with her attunement because she didn't get enough to give to us or dad was drinking or she was drinking whatever the story So if we don't have a developed core, we can't go back to our parents because if we go back to our parents to heal it, the first time, (laughs) the first time they chew food wrong, the first time they look at us wrong, we'll go, we'll shut down or we'll shrink or we'll defend. Mm -hmm. So I often say, look, in order to go back and heal that relationship in person, build your core first, do your inner work to build your core so you can then take the show on the road and heal your relationship with your parents in real life. So you asked me, what are some of the ways people can heal with their parents in real life? Well, in the book, one of the ways I teach is to look behind the parents and see what made them disconnected from you, see what made them drink, see what made them cruel, see what made them shut down so it's not felt so personally. One of the things, oh, of course my mom couldn't attune to me. Uh, Let's use the example you gave a little while ago. She lost the baby before me. Of course she was afraid she'd lose me too. No wonder I didn't get enough of her. So that's one example. Another example of, oh, my father was um, uh, in foster care. No wonder he was violent and frustrated every time he looked at me. Um, I reminded him of his own inner child inside himself that he had to snuff. So whenever he saw me as a little baby, he got violent. Mm -hmm. So rather than blame him for being a horrible, violent person, the compassion and understanding that comes in from, of course, he he would have been brutal to me as a little child. He was brutal to his own inner little child. You get it? So we start to look behind the parents so their behaviors aren't felt so personally. Another thing we can do is, let's say we can't heal our relationship with our mom because she hurt us too deeply. Okay, that's reasonable. Put a photograph of your mom over your left shoulder when you go to sleep at night. So your head's on the pillow, you're looking up at the ceiling and somewhere on your left nightstand or taped on your bed frame or taped on the wall over your left shoulder is a photo of your mom. And look at that photo and say, "Okay, Mom." And visualize that you're kind of talking to Mom's higher self or or that this practice is spiritually guided Andrea, you know? Um so you'd say to the photo, "Mom, please hold me in my sleep so I can learn to feel safe in my body. Teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it." and how to let it in without taking care of you, just receiving. Mm. And those would be the words. And then visualize a thread, a wave, a current, an energy, your mom's hand holding you at night, while, before you go to bed, a very important time for neuroplastic change. And visualize before you go to sleep, that mom's holding you and you're able to take in and receive now you're not doing it in real life, but you're doing it with a picture, but the brain doesn't care. The brain doesn't really notice um, where the healing comes from. It just wants the healings. So the heal- the same regions of the brain activate, the same neurons activate as if you were doing it in real life. In other words, visualization is just as potent as real life experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. <sighs> so much. <laughs> this is amazing.
1: Yeah, we could we could talk all day, Andrea.
0: Yeah, we sure could. <laughs> um, now, what do you say if, uh, what if you can't figure out what happened to your parents?
1: Because? As far
0: as what their prior experience was.
1: Oh, okay. Because there's no information. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's common because our parents are dead or... Or our parents (laughs) or uh, not talking. They don't share a lot. Okay. So one of the things, as you know, I teach in the book is I teach people how to listen to their trauma language.
0: Yeah, I want to dive into
1: that. uh, We will. Okay, I'll save it for later. But let me just say this. Um, The information of what our parents don't tell us or what we don't know, it lives in us. It's in our fears. It's in our unexplained symptoms. It's in our... Uh, self-destructive, self-sabotaging behaviors. It lives in the symptoms of an illness that appear after you know an unsettling event, or when we reach a certain age, or we get into a relationship because our relationship struggles. That that is a very good indicator of what lives in our family and what happened with and what happened with our mother.
0: <clears throat>
1: yeah, right, exactly. But but it also you know, not only our early relationship with our mother, but it's also, um, you know, uh, what happened in our family, you know, how we let ourselves be treated, the repeated, uh, how we treat other people, the repeated ways we deal with money, uh, success, all of this is a breadcrumb trail that that gives us um, more than a glimpse of what might've happened in our family history, even if, you know, it's been lost or kept secret or we're adopted, and this helps us explain why, why we feel the way we feel. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So let's dive into the uh, the core language approach.
1: All right. All right. I thought you wanted to go into healing. I'll do that later. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll save the good stuff for last. We'll save how we heal uh, for the for the end. So there's a positive end to the yes, podcast.
0: Yes. No, that's I right. am thing positive. So you're good. All right.
1: <laughs> so look, trauma language is really important. And it's the reason I wrote that book. I, I discovered that when trauma happens, clues, clues are left behind um, in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences. Um, and again, it's like this breadcrumb trail. It's like finding the missing piece of the puzzle when we learn how to follow it that lets the whole picture come into view and finally can help us explain why we feel this way just from the things that we say and do. Because this trauma language can be verbal and nonverbal. And first of all, let me let me talk about the verbal trauma language. We know from trauma theory, that when a traumatic event happens to us, significant information bypasses the frontal lobes. So the experience of exactly what happened to us, uh, it can't can't be named or ordered through words because our language centers are compromised, our hippocampus is compromised. And so during a trauma, and without, without language our experiences are stored as uh, f- fragments of memory, fragments of body sensations, fragments of images, fragments of emotions and fragments of language. So it's like the mind um, explodes, it disperses and essential elements get separated. We lose the story of what happened to us and never complete the healing. Yet what I've discovered these pieces aren't lost, they've just been rerouted. And they resurface in our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language. So verbal trauma language is, um, uh, I always ask this question, what's your worst fear? And if somebody says, oh, I'll be abandoned, I'll be left, um, that's verbal trauma language. Another verbal trauma language is I'll hurt somebody, I'll hurt a child, Uh, I won't save somebody, Um, I'll be responsible, Um, I'll I'll be put in jail. This is verbal trauma language. When it's nonverbal, again, we look for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after an unsettling event. You know, for example, uh, our partner leaves us and we feel like we want to kill ourselves. What's really showing up is the break in the attachment with our mom. So we look for our fears our anxieties, um, often anxieties that strike uh, suddenly when we reach a certain age. Age 30 was the age, say, our grandma became a widow. And so our parents divorced at 29. So as soon as we reach that same age, all of a sudden, we look at our partner and we feel shut down without realizing it's connected to family history. So ages are important. Uh, Like I said earlier, we have to look at our depression, our destructive or self-sabotaging behaviors um, that arise after a situation that's similar to a trauma in our family history. Um, This nonverbal trauma language, it's everywhere. It's in our relationships, it's in our career, money, all of
0: it. Yeah. Okay. So now where? We want to go into... I mean, is that covering core descriptors? I guess it kind of is. Well,
1: yeah, you know, core descriptors are, you know, one of the things I do is I ask people uh, 20 different ways to come up with um, this trauma language, you know, how they describe their partners, their parents, their, their fears. So, look, when I work with a client, the first thing I do is I listen for this trauma language. Like uh, um, this language, as I said, is both verbal and nonverbal. And um, then after we've I've isolated this trauma language, uh, we track it back, and you learn to do this in part two of the book. You learn to track it back to an originating event in the early childhood, or, or in trauma. the, or, yeah, or into the family history, and then we're ready to do the deep work to heal. And healing involves many things, but mostly uh, we need to focus on having you know, positive experiences that allow us to feel integrated in our body. And that's the key, positive experiences that we can um, feel connected to these positive experiences, the feelings of these positive experiences, the sensations of these positive experiences in our body, because this will allow us to calm our brain's uh, trauma response so that we can break this cycle of traumatic living. So in a session, I'll often facilitate positive experiences to people and then give homework practices based in neuroscience that can help us change our brain.
0: Do you wanna give some examples?
1: No. No, yeah, absolutely. I'm teasing. Of course, I do. Okay, we're done. We're done. We're done. So, look. Yeah. Let me let me give lots of examples. Um, first of all, let me let me explain what I'm talking about. So, to heal, I want to underscore this. We've got to have positive experiences that can change our brain, and then we've got to practice the new feelings and the new sensations associated with these positive experiences. Why? Because when we do this, we're creating new new neural pathways uh, in our brain. That's true. You know, neurons are wiring together in a new way. But we're also stimulating the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain, like serotonin, dopamine, uh, GABA. Um, Also, we're stimulating the release of feel-good hormones um, in our body, like estrogen, oxytocin, and then even the genes that we've inherited or uh, the gene expression we've inherited or got uh, uh, exacerbated when we had an early trauma, the genes involved in our body's stress response can even begin to function differently. They can improve. We can change the way our DNA expression expresses. So um that's removing
0: exa- cool those tags essentially
1: yeah you know we when a trauma happens we have epigenetic tags that tell our body okay this terrible thing happened let's use the this gene and ignore this gene to help survive it so you know to to so we can uh, you know deal with this trauma but we can change even that mechanism that expression by positive experiences. Now, positive experiences, I teach in the book, the reader, um, to have, to to, to um, receive comfort and support, even if there was none. I also teach to have uh, a gratitude practice, uh, to uh, engender your compassion, to find your own compassion where it may be missing for yourself, for your, what your parents went through, what your grandparents went through. Um, so, Practices of comfort, support, compassion, gratitude, having a generosity practice, having a loving kindness practice, doing something nice for somebody every day, practicing mindfulness, keeping an open mind, being curious. Ultimately, anything that allows us to feel strength, inner strength, peace, joy inside, these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and they can help us reframe the stress response, so it has a chance to, um, to, to to downregulate, to calm down. The idea is to pull traction away from the limbic system, um, you know, our overactive amygdala, and bring engagement um, to our forebrain, really, um, uh, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate. These experiences and our brains can change. Um, we, we know from mindfulness studies that just practicing mindfulness actually shrinks the amygdala and thickens the prefrontal cortex. So, yeah, there's a lot more I could say, but I talked about uh, putting a, a photograph of your mom over your left shoulder. Here, here's another one. You know, maybe having a practice where you feel your ancestors at your back. Supporting you, hearing them say to you, um, you know, from now on, we stand behind you, supporting you, and you don't have to live small like we did, or impoverished like we did, or unhappy as we did. So you might put a picture up of uh, people on your wall and sit in front of this wall and feel the love and support coming from your ancestors. Or if your grandmother was the excluded one in the family, put her picture in, in your living room or in your meditation room, and as you walk by, hear her say to you, um, the feeling that you carry was never yours. Every time you feel as though you could harm your child or you feel that you'll be left, just breathe that feeling back to me and feel me supporting you instead. So again, I'm a big believer in working through visualization to heal our prefrontal cortex, but it's not just that. When people work with me, I give them a very physical practice of integrating what got fragmented, healing those fragmentations viscerally, physically inside the body. Um, So the parts of us that have tightened or shut down or numbed out or dissociated, integrating them back into the body with breath, sensation, and awareness what I like to call the other Holy Trinity.
0: <laughs> so what year did you release the book?
1: So I released the book in 2016, but there were um, all these good studies. So I reintroduced it in 2017 so I could include all the, the new work. So the new, so the paperback is all the newest material. Okay. Um, no. And it, yeah.
0: I was just going to say, I guess how is the concept of inherited trauma, how was it received by the scientific and medical community at that point in time? And has that changed at all now in 2021?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, every every week you're seeing new studies being released um, about inherited trauma or intergenerational trauma. And I list them all on my Facebook page. So if people want to read, you know, what's getting released um, uh, every week, go to my Facebook page. But Is there one
0: that was of particular note or importance that you'd want to share about?
1: Sure, yeah. There's a recent study in the Journal of American Psychiatry, JAMA Psychiatry, that's really cool. Um, It talks about um, they followed mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were more likely to struggle with depression and bipolar disorder And then there's a recent Tufts University study that followed men who suffered trauma as children, and it showed that they were able to pass their anxiety onto their children through their sperm. And what was significant about this study, it's the first study to show that human sperm mirrored the same changes as the same non-coding RNA changes found in the mice that they've traumatized in labs. Mm So there's all these cool, cool things that are happening. But no, I don't think people doubt this anymore. The mechanisms might not always be clear. And, um, you know, because the, they're discovering more and more. And for that reason, I think that right now, a lot of the studies are looking at the male line because it's easier to um, look at the sperm than the egg. But there's an equal number of studies in each direction. Mm-hmm. But ba- basically, our, you know it, to put it in a nutshell, if I had to, I would say that our <clears throat> sperm cells and, and egg cells are, that, that are passed forward are, oh gosh, how, how could I say this easily? Um, I'll say it this way. Memories of trauma are imprinted in our parents and grandparents, sperm cells and egg cells. And somehow this information gets passed forward to us. And they're not always clear about how that information passes forward. They have many ideas, um, DNA methylation, histone modifications, non-coding RNA, small RNAs, large RNAs, long RNAs. So there's just many different Uh, Mechanisms, and then as a result, we're born with altered brains Uh that are preparing us biologically to cope with traumas that are similar to the traumas our parents and grandparents experience. Uh Oh, I like what I just said. I think I think that's good. I think I just put it all in a nutshell. Perfect. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'll send you the clip. Yeah, (laughs) Um, are you seeing? Like general practitioners um, integrating this knowledge at all in their work?
1: Well, that's why I did do, teach the training. So I'm glad you bring that up actually, because no, not enough. Um, there's not enough of inherit, inherited family trauma brought to the forefront um, of thinking in our clinicians' um, awarenesses. So I That's why I wrote the book. So clinicians would um, begin to add this into their practices. And that's why I taught this training. I just completed an awesome training on my website that's streamable, that teaches people how to do my work, uh, how to look at intergenerational and attachment trauma and how to tell the difference and how to heal. So yeah, if you're a clinician, check that out. It's a really... Quite amazing training.
0: I mean, is this covered at all in medical school or no?
1: Well, well I teach, I've done a lot of teaching in psychiatry programs and medical schools and, uh, and graduate schools, social work schools. So yes, I would say that it's just beginning to crack that barrier and get into mainstream. What is mainstream? How do I, I, don't, I take that back. This is very mainstream. This is science. This is, mm-hmm. ma- this is very mainstream. But yes, pe- I agree. people are now starting to talk about it. Uh, if you go on again to my Facebook page, there's a lot of physicians and research studies done in medicine. I mean, that's where the research is done in medical research. In fact, one of some of my favorite studies, uh, I think, well, I talk about it in the book, I don't know, know if I need to talk about it here. Oh, I brought it up, so I'll talk about it. Um, one of my favorite studies is done in Emory Medical School in Atlanta, where they make male mice afraid of a certain scent, a cherry blossom-like scent, and they shock the mice every time they smell that scent. So right there in that first generation, um, the, there were changes, in the, right there in that first generation, There were changes in the blood, the brain, and the sperm. In the brain, there were enlarged areas where a greater amount of smell receptors existed so that these little mice that were shocked could detect the scent in lesser concentrations. So let's put that together. I'm a little mouse. I'm shocked. Now I'm freaked out and my brain is protecting me. It's already making me more keenly aware of the same scent at lesser concentrations. So the, my, the mice brains had epigenetically adapted to protect them. So the researchers had this cool idea. Well, what happens if we take some of the sperm, because this changes are in the sperm too, and impregnate females who weren't shocked? Well, here's the cool thing. The amazing thing is what happened to the pups and the grand pups. They became jumpy and jittery in the second and third generation. Just by smelling the smell they they had inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma oh. so in answer to this question, all of this research is done in medical schools um, and um, there you go i could t- <laughs> I could talk about it all day.
0: I know you could, and I would if I could so. When you're working on a new book, when can we expect to have that in our little hands?
1: Oh, yeah, that's going to be a good one. I'm working on (laughs) symptoms. Well, I'm excited about it. So I'm working on symptoms um, and the way they're connected to uh, trauma, both intergenerational and attachment, and specifically complex symptoms um, where our doctors throw up their hands and say, um, yes, you have very complex symptoms, <laughs> so that's that's what I'm you know like the one I originally started yes. my journey with, which was all part of a bigger complex. yeah, it was anxiety which led to stress, which led to blindness, which led to me going on a search, which led to this talk today.
0: Did you ever rock an eye patch?
1: Did I ever rock an eye patch? No, I didn't. I was always covering one eye um to you know, like cuz yeah because it was really quite disconcerting to have one eye that saw and one eye that didn't but now thank goodness both eyes see and it's um yeah it's better
0: that's amazing yeah. well you are amazing seriously thank you oh. so much for all of this um well, you're
1: welcome thank my you. last
0: question to you would just be like you know your work what you have done you have impacted the lives of so many people and are you able to receive that? Like that is, it's truly amazing. You know, thank, you've really you really had a huge impact on people.
1: Thank you for saying that. So I didn't know what the book was going to do quite frankly. And here I am late five years later, and it's uh, been a bestseller. It's in 22 languages um, all over the world. It's being read. It, it's really quite gratifying to know that, the book was as big as it was I, I had no idea in the beginning i just needed to get this work out there so i'm really quite grateful to see um you know it light up all people's awarenesses all over the globe
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's amazing well we will have you back once you have your book or i mean i will take you any time i'd take you every week if i could but uh, i definitely will be promoting your book and um all your studies and i'll be sure to include all of your information in the show notes. This has truly been a dream come true. I've been bugging you for a year. You've been on my like, you know, my uh guest bu- bucket list so I could pop this one off. So thank you so much. That oh, you're so welcome. You it was share your time with me. Oh,
1: Andrea, it was just an absolute pleasure talking with you. I'm glad we did it.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, if you didn't, you got some issues. Thank you, Mark Wolin. You are fucking amazing. Everyone, please go check out his shit. I've included it all in the show notes, as well as additional resources related to this particular topic. You will also find my social media links. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Pod. So now for Hit A Girl Up. So I've had several people ask when and where the Dr. Drew interview is. I don't know. I think it's going to come out in the next few weeks. I'm going to reach out to them if it doesn't drop tomorrow, which would be today if you're listening. So it might come up on the 14th, but if not, I'm going to follow up with them and see where the hell that is. I actually, to be honest with you, I had a dream that... They, Dr. Drew called me up and he told me that it was too inappropriate and that they couldn't release it. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I don't think that's going to happen because I definitely was not inappropriate. I also wanted to read a message that I received from Renee. Andrea, I love you. I love your podcast. I'm on number five. So this will be a nice treat for her when she finally gets to number 16. I recommended it to my daughter and the other women who I know will love it. Your seventh grade experience was so much like what happened to me at 12. Thank you for busting wide open all the stuff that's been rotting in me for 40 plus years. Thank you for your courage, humility, and humor. I love you, Andrea, not Andrea. (laughs) May I get to meet you trudging on the road of happy destiny. Thank you for your inspiration. Well, thank you, Renee. And one of my dreams is one day maybe we can have an adult child meetup. It'll be crazy. Uh, Let's dream big, y'all. If you have comments, questions, insights, please hit a girl up. Check out the show notes for ways to contact me. Next week, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview, too. I'm talking to an author, the son of a Holocaust survivor, and his story is really fascinating. So I'll see you next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. You're slow now Don't let it all